You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Let me read Habakkuk chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, and then I'll lead us in prayer and uh, preach. So uh, the word of the Lord says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are, bef- excuse me, are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for um, revealing yourself to us in the Bible. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us in this time to Uh, see your word as you see it, that we would rightly divide the word, that you would help me as a broken and sinful man to preach truth. Um, God, that you would help me to preach and proclaim the gospel in a way that's soothing to us, comforting, and and also salvific. Lord, let us find our hope and trust in no other than Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. so when we look at Habakkuk, um, it, it is a, a little bit of a, an unfamiliar text to most of us. This isn't um, a text that, you know, you're not, you're not getting like a, a daily inspirational calendar and there's a lot of verses from Habakkuk on it. <laughs> it's just, it's a little bit of a dark book. Um, now Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet. He's one of 12 prophets that are referred to as the minor prophets. Uh, they're not called minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor because their books are shorter than like Jeremiah and Isaiah, some of the major prophets. Um, and so we're, this year at our church, we're actually going to preach four of the minor prophets. Habakkuk in this season, then we'll also preach Nahum, Haggai, and Obadiah. Um, and this series we've entitled Voicing Frustrations. And the reason is because Habakkuk, just, just plain and simple, goes to the Lord with a lot of complaints. Um, if, if you have a Bible that's the English Standard Version, you'll see uh, the subheading of these sections are Habakkuk's first complaint, Habakkuk's second complaint. And that's kind of how the book is laid out in a question and answer type of format. And the, when we look at the scriptures, I think it's interesting how much of the Bible is lament, is, is complaining, is bemoaning, is, is, um, is kind of resting in suffering and sadness. A lot of people paint the Bible to be only happy uh, scriptures all the time, but a lot of the Bible is sad. A significant portion of the Bible is lament. And, and the reason that lament is a vast portion of the Bible is because lament is a vast portion of our lives, isn't it? Like, like all of us in our lives experience suffering. We have to see and live with depravity. We see the effects of sin. We all have loss and grief and suffering. And so since that's such a big part of our lives, it is actually good news to you that it's such a big part of the Bible. You see, God promises comfort, victory, healing, redemption, but he primarily promises that in the eternal state, which is much better than this temporal state. But in this temporal state, in our earthly life, what God tells us is going to come is the result of sin, the result of a fallen world. And the result of a fallen world is a world that's full of disease, a world that's full of pestilence, a world that's full of hardship, and a world that's full of war. And this is what Habakkuk was looking at as he wrote this prophecy. And I think a lot of us have, have seen this uh, very, very close to us, especially the past couple years. We just had the two-year anniversary of COVID uh, locking down the United States, and we you know, had to live through that, and in many ways still are living through that. 
Um, in addition to that, just recently we've seen race riots, a lot of political tension in our country, uh, division. Now there's full-blown war in Europe. Um, a lot, it's enough to make a lot of us just feel like we're 100% done with this world and ready to check out. And Habakkuk also lived at a tumultuous time. And matter of fact, I would make the argument that every generation has to live through some, some tumultuous stuff, some crazy things. And Habakkuk particularly lived at a time where he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. If you know any biblical history, you know that Israel was divided into uh, two, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was um, attacked and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Then historically, the Assyrian Empire is overtaken by um, the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians were ruthless, and, and uh, uh, Habakkuk is actually writing in between those two things. So the Assyrians had overtaken the northern kingdom. He's in the southern kingdom. The Babylonians had conquered, and they were kind of all around Judah at this time. The attack is seemingly imminent, and he begins to issue these complaints or these laments to God. And I think what I want you to learn from this church is it is okay for you to lament in prayer. I would even say it's actually good for you to lament in prayer. Some of you are all like, we can do that? That's allowed? Um, I, just, I just recently booked a U-Haul instead of a rental car because gas prices, am I right? And, um, and I booked a U-Haul. You can get a U-Haul truck for $19.95 a day, just like the pickup trucks. And, um, and they, were like, they were like, yeah, so you'll be in town for two days. Are you moving? And like, you know, panic hit me. And I was like, yes. Because I'm moving myself and my backpack around town. And so, like, yes. And, and it, I saved like $200 by booking a U-Haul instead of a rental car. And it, it, I learned that from TikTok. My wife sent me a TikTok where somebody done it. And when I watched that, I was like, wait, you can do that? And then I was like, nothing's stopping me, I guess. And, and so I think when we look at prayer, we, we kind of build these imaginary guardrails that don't exist. Like, like we have to be all happy and flowery in our prayers. And a lot of us use King James language in our prayers. Like we, we completely change who we are when we go to the Lord in prayer. You know that it's actually encouraged in the Bible that you come to God honestly? Let me put it to you this way. If I was unhappy with my wife, which never happens, but let's hypothetically say it happened one time. And I was unhappy with my wife, something she had done, and I went around to all my buddies and griped about her, which also never happens, by the way, but if I went and complained to all my friends about my wife, and then one of my friends, let's say, accidentally screenshot a conversation to her, which also never happens, um, but, but that, if that happened, or if they just casually mentioned to her, yeah, your husband was griping about you, how is it gonna make my wife feel? She's going to be like, why don't you just come to me? If you're unhappy with something, if you're angry about something, why don't you just come to me? And, and we, what we don't realize is in our prayers, we do the same thing to God. We go to him with all flowers, sunshine, and rainbow. Everything's happy. Lord, we bless thee, all this kind of stuff. And then we go and complain about our circumstances to everyone else in our lives. And the Lord is like, if you're unhappy, why don't you come to me? Ken Fentress says it this way, lamenting in prayer is better than just lamenting alone. It's like in the Basham family, I don't know how it works at your house, but if our kids have a problem with mom or dad, we sit them down at the table and we make them talk about it. You're not going to have beef with us and not discuss it. Well, the reality is, is when things befall you that you don't like, that God has allowed to come upon you, sometimes it's going to make you angry. Sometimes it's going to make you depressed. And you're going to complain about it regardless. And you think God doesn't hear your complaining? 
The omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign God, he definitely does. So you might as well make it a lament in prayer rather than a complaint outside of prayer. And before you complain to another person, you need to ask yourself, have you taken your lament to God himself? Because when you take your lamenting to God himself in prayer, you might find correction. But I love the honesty of the Bible. I pulled out one example that's one of my favorites. Psalm 13, verse 1. David, the great psalmist, who writes all those worship songs that we sing, he, he begins one of his worship songs in the Bible like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Can you all imagine coming to church one Sunday and Baker's like, we're going to do a new song today. And the lyrics go, are you going to forget me forever, God? <laughs> I mean, we would be like, Baker, what, what the heck are you doing picking these songs? Like we would, we would question that, right? But that's, God wrote that. God inspired that. Now Habakkuk's laments are very legitimate. He, he has three main complaints that he takes to God, and that's what I want to walk you through today. The first one is that prayers go unanswered, and he's not happy about that. The second one is he tells God that sin is rampant, and the third one he tells God is that justice is absent. And so he say, he's saying, God, I'm praying, and you're not answering my prayers. And when I look around, I just see sin everywhere. And more than that, I see, I see a lack of justice. Let's look at the first one. Prayers go unanswered. Um, you guys know this to be true, right? We're all, we're all good country music fans. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. One of my favorite stories of church planting is a guy told me, it's like the Bible says some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And Jesus didn't say that. Garth Brooks said that. Doesn't make it untrue, but it's just not something Jesus said. But I think Garth is onto something here, right? That, that sometimes when we pray and ask for things, God doesn't give us exactly what we're asking for, and that is in his sovereign plan. And even though it might not feel good to us, it is good, ultimately, in God's plan. Prayers should be pleas for mercy, not a wish list. And so when God doesn't give us everything we want, we have to reconcile that with the fact that in God's sovereign plan, he's given us what we need. But what do we do when what we need isn't pleasant? Or even more uncomfortable, what do we do when what we need doesn't even seem godly? Doesn't even seem righteous? What happens when we desperately yearn and beg for something in prayer that we know to be good, yet it's not answered? Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so what if you pray for something in faith and you don't get it. Does that mean Jesus is wrong here? Well, context matters. In the context that Jesus said that, he's actually talking about hypocrisy. He's giving a teaching to his apostles on how they can get hypocrisy out of their hearts. Preachers quote that to say you can have whatever you want if you just believe more. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us we can have God is pleased to grant our prayer requests when we ask for what he calls good things. Can I tell you this? Sometimes the things that you think are good, God knows to actually not be good for you. It's like, it's like when my kids, all they want to eat is candy and junk food all the time, and they say, can I have this? It's good. It's great. I love it. But as a father, I know that's not good for you. That's not good for you to have. You're going to eat some broccoli, kid. Well, we don't like broccoli, Lord. I want to complain about I want to lament about the broccoli you've given me. But the Lord... Is saying, I'm giving you what's needed. Does God not hear us? Or does he ignore us when we ask for these things? Listen how Habakkuk puts it. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Verse 1 says that these conversations, it calls these conversations the oracle that Habakkuk saw, which means that this isn't just an audible conversation that Habakkuk is having. This is a vision that Habakkuk is given. It's, it's similar to Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah when uh, the, the Bible says, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, oftentimes God would call his prophets into his presence to give them the prophecy. And so Habakkuk in some way is, is whisked into the presence of God and he has the audacity to be like, how long am I going to cry for help and you're not answering me? You're not hearing me, God. I'm crying to you violence. Do you, do you see what's going on down here? As Habakkuk's called into heaven, I think he's pointing to earth saying, do you see the violence? Do you see the war? What are you doing, God? This is your job. Well, God answers in verse five. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You see, Habakkuk was worried about the internal violence in Judah, not so much the external violence from the Babylonian Empire. And God is going to make it clear that he is going to allow the Babylonian Empire to invade the kingdom of Judah. And God told him, take your eyes off of Judah and look even broader, and you'll see that the problem's even worse outside of your immediate context. And God is going to allow the unrestrained violence of the Babylonians to enter Judah and conquer them and take them away as slaves into exile. And he says, I'm doing a work. God says, I'm, I'm working on something. And if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't even believe what I would have to tell you. I was talking to Deacon Keith this week because Leslie made a QR code. And as Leslie was making a QR code for us to donate money to Ukrainians, I was looking at her making that QR code. And I asked Leslie because I thought she would know, but she didn't. But I was like, how does a QR code work? Like, I get it's like a fingerprint. There's these little dots. But, like, there's multiple QR code generating websites. And somehow, when you generate one, within seconds, I mean instantly, every phone in the world can look at that and immediately take you to the same website. I was talking to Keith about that, and he was like, I never thought about that, man. And I was like, dude, it keeps me up at night. Like, <laughs> I can't sleep because of this. And he was like, I mean, it's not that crazy. And I'm like, yes, it is. Like, so I, I, I told Keith, I said, I can understand how we put a man on the moon, like conceptually. I can't do it. I can't build a rocket. Like, I don't know. But I, but I at least can, my mind can fathom that, you know, we would take a guy up there and he would hop off and walk around on the moon. But there's no category in my brain for a QR code working. I just, I just don't have it. Maybe y'all do. Um, but I, I can't wrap my mind around that. And if I can't understand a QR code, how am I going to understand the infinitely complex creator that is God? And we think we can go to God in prayer and he's going to give us all the answers to his plan. Sometimes when we're frustrated with the plan of God, the answer is not, let me help you figure out the plan of God. The answer is trust in the plan of God. You see, you're under no obligation to understand God's plan. As a matter of fact, if God gave you more information about what he's doing, he's saying to Habakkuk, you wouldn't even believe what I was telling you. That I'm going to allow war to come into your country, that I'm going to allow you to be exiled, and it's ultimately going to be for the great redemptive narrative that I am creating, ultimately for my glory and for the good of my people. You can't understand that, Habakkuk. You're just a man. But that's frustrating, isn't it? That's why we lament. We lament to God and we say, we don't get it. We don't like it. 
and that's okay. Let me challenge your thinking even beyond a QR code for a second. What if I told you that God himself knows what it feels like to pray and receive silence? That God the Son would request something of God the Father and receive silence? Similarly, my brain doesn't really have a category for that, but we see in Matthew 26, Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's in great agony. The Bible says that his sweat became like drops of blood and it says going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed this saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, he goes a step further than Habakkuk. He doesn't just say, can we find another way? But he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus asks for a way around the cross. Is there any way that we can redeem sinful humanity other than me going to the cross and suffering and having the Father's wrath poured upon me? Is there any other way for that? And Jesus receives no vision at that time. Jesus receives no answer. The clouds don't open up. There's no voice from heaven. There's no dove that descends. There's no angels that show up. There's not a gracious and merciful audible that God the Father calls. Rather, Jesus receives silence, and all he receives is a quiet garden filled with the agony of his sobbing prayers. And when you pray, and you weep while you pray, and you cry while you pray because the circumstances of your life are too heavy for you to bear, let me tell you, Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And maybe the process of walking through that, Habakkuk, child of God, son of God, daughter of God, maybe the process of walking through that is exactly what God is working in you that you just can't understand right now. Well, Habakkuk complained some more. The second thing is he said, well, sin is rampant. Habakkuk's other complaint and lament is that everywhere he looked, there was sin. John Bradford, the English reformer, coined a phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. And he would say this as criminals were marched through the streets to be executed. They would march them through the streets so they could embarrass them and shame them for the crimes that they had committed. And Bradford used to look at these criminals being marched, and that's old English, um, so it's a little bit confusing in modern English, but basically what he's saying is, if it were not for God's grace, I would be a criminal worthy of death, and I would be marching those streets too. Ironically, the Catholic Church ended up putting Bradford to death because he preached a gospel of grace alone rather than a gospel of works. He was accused as a heretic and he would walk those streets and be executed. But what Bradford understood was that he needed grace from God, not merit for God. And as we look around and we watch the decay of morality as Christians, we see our world just completely disregarding morality, right and wrong, walking continually in a way that is not pleasing to God. And as we look at that, we can't look at that without humility. We have to look at that and lament that, but also say, were it not for God's grace, I would be walking in that same sin. But we lament it. Habakkuk did in verse three. He says to God, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's saying everywhere he looks, There's depravity, sin, sadness. And again, sadly, the Lord answers, it's going to get worse, Habakkuk. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. He names this nation by name now. Chaldea, Chaldea was an ancient city that was absorbed into the Babylonian Empire and their ethnicity. 
He says, I am raising up the Babylonian Empire, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, God had already told his people this was coming. Through his prophet Jeremiah, he warned them to repent, but they continued to worship idols instead of worship the one true God. They became polytheistic rather than monotheistic. And in God's plan, he was not going to allow that. And God had foretold this through Jeremiah in 627 B.C., almost three decades before Habakkuk would write his prophecy in 600 B.C. The Chaldeans, uh, as part of the Babylonian Empire, had already defeated and overtaken the Assyrian Empire and thereby taken the northern kingdom of Israel already. But even sinners in their efforts against God will serve to bring God's plan to pass. Like, you cannot thwart God's plan. You cannot stop God's plan. Even when you act in a way that's contrary to God's will, it still serves his will. The Bible has a couple examples of this. One of them is Pharaoh. That when God's people are exiled into Egypt, taken into Egypt, into slavery, God uses Pharaoh. Romans 9 says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, not allowing the Israelites to leave ultimately so they could pass through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and all of its sin and all of its injustice would be drowned in the Red Sea. Ultimately for God's glory. He says the same thing about Babylon. He never says that Babylon's okay. He never, he never justifies Babylon's actions, but God is going to use sinful Babylon to accomplish his plan. Let me tell you this. The same thing is true of you. And we don't like to think of it that way. I'm not Pharaoh. I'm not Babylon. Your life was completely antithetical to God's plan. You served yourself rather than serving God. The Bible makes it clear that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and walked away from God's plan to serve ourselves. And even in your selfish quest in sin, you brought glory to God. Because the more you sinned, the more that he saved you from when he saved you. Romans 5.20 says, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the more that we humans sin and sin and sin, the more glory God gets because that's the more that he's redeeming us out of. God's grace will ultimately win. God's grace will ultimately snuff out sin once and for all. But for now, we have to live in it and we have to see that sin is rampant and everywhere. Now don't be fooled to think that God's lost control somehow. That because our world is sinful, God has, has lost control of everything. This is kind of where Habakkuk is. He's like, God, you still got this thing under control? You still able to do this? Because it doesn't look like you're, you got it under control. When we lament in prayer, we come to God in honesty. And Jesus, like he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, like Habakkuk, similarly, he prays like Habakkuk in the high priestly prayer as well. You know, in Jesus' what's called the high priestly prayer we find in John 17, you know he prays for you before you were born, if you're a Christian. If you've given your life to Jesus, Jesus knew you would do that. He prayed for you in the high priestly prayer. He says in John 17, he says, I don't only pray for my apostles, but I also pray for all of those who will believe on me. That's you. And in that prayer, he says, oh, righteous father, in John 17, 25, even though the world does not know you, so he says, even though they're going to live in a world that's filled with sin and doesn't obey the gospel and doesn't obey God's morality, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, that's you if you've trusted in Jesus, these know that you have sent me. 
And so as Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, he has in his mind, and this just blows my mind again more than a QR code, he has in his mind Will Basham, who's going to be born in Hamlin, West Virginia, and who's going to ultimately surrender his life and repent of sin and trust in Christ. He is going to be my disciple, and 2,000 years before he's born, I'm praying that you would take care of him in a world that's filled with sin. When you look and see sin everywhere, remind yourself of that. That Jesus is praying for you now, but he's also been praying for you for thousands of years that you could endure the temptation of sin that's all around you. Well, let's look at the last complaint. Justice is absent. Okay. You say that sometimes God might not answer a prayer and we're going to have to live with sin all around us. Well, Will, what about injustice? Because I, like, listen, if you're like me, I can deal with people being sinful, Right? Like sinners sin. I just expect it from sinners. But when it crosses the line from sin that only affects them to sin that unjustly affects innocent people, that's when I get angry. That's when I get fired up because justice absent is a serious offense. When your sin and your unrighteousness affects children or innocent people, that's a serious offense, right? It's one thing to be immoral, but when your immorality affects the innocent, that's what we call injustice. And we know that God loves justice, doesn't he? Amos 5, he says through one of his minor prophets, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. He commands justice of his people. He says in Micah 6, 8, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? So when Habakkuk looks around and he sees injustice everywhere, That doesn't add up to him. He says in verse four, so the law is paralyzed. That's a way of saying, your law is not doing anything, God. He says, justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Well, Habakkuk, for the third time, I'm sorry, but the Lord has bad news again. Bad news in your mind. The Babylonian Empire is coming with more injustice than Habakkuk could ever imagine. Verse 7, the Lord says, They, being the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldeans, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Now, Habakkuk had made a case before the Lord that there was no justice. And God says, the Babylonians are coming with their justice. Now the word there is very important because there are some morally absolute truths. Truth itself is absolute, meaning it's created by a creator outside of us. We don't get to decide what's true. We also don't get to decide what's right or wrong. That's something reserved for God. We also don't get to decide what's just and unjust. That belongs to God. But notice in verse seven that God says their justice and dignity. Not just justice and dignity, but it's an idiomatic way of saying that justice and truth for the Babylonians was relative. And when they thought something was just, it was actually only self-serving to them. And they were bringing that perverted method of justice into God's kingdom. They redefined justice and fairness in a way that was perverted. And here's the irony. God was going to allow them to come into his kingdom with that. And as the Babylonians dealt out military injustice, God was dealing out his justice. 
He explains it in verses 8 through 11. By the way, this is in Hebrew poetry. So in the original language of Hebrew, this is poetic with rhythm and rhyme to it. And he explains it in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. And this is important. This means they're not going to retreat. They're not going to turn around and go home. Their faces stay forward. They gather captives like the sand. You ever been to the beach and just pick up all that sand? Every grain in your hand, you couldn't count it. They gather captives like that. Verse 10 says, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they pile up earth and take it. He's describing the method of building up earthen or dirt ramps that would, they would climb up walls with and jump over city, city gates and military fortresses. And verse 11 says, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Now notice God, even though he's using the Babylonians, doesn't justify them. He calls them guilty men in verse 11. Guilty men whose might is their God. What a description. And as I read this description that God used to describe Babylon, it reminded me of a lot of things in the Bible that I've read before. I would actually call the language that God uses to describe Babylon as heavenly language. He says they fly like eagles to devour in verse 8. Well, he says that about his people as well in Isaiah 40, 31. He says, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. He says that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to gather their captives like sand. We also use that analogy with Abram in Genesis 22. He tells Abram, I will bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. You say, this military's got numbers. Well, God's people are more numerous than the sands on the shore. The Babylonians laughed at every fortress, but the Lord says in Psalm 18 that he is our fortress. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. They swept through like wind, moving on to the next nation that they would capture. Psalm 104.4 says that God makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Do you see what the Lord is doing? The Lord is saying he's using heavenly language to describe Babylon, not because they're heavenly people, but because they're instruments of heaven. And God's going to use them in his plan in a way that most men are not going to understand, but yet God's people will prevail because they are stronger, because they are eternal. As Christians, we cannot lose. We can't. You can take this life. You can shut down our church gatherings. You can persecute us. You can do all that you want, but ultimately our hope is eternal and no man can touch what's eternal. Only God can. And so God is ultimately going to prevail with his church, with his people for eternity. But right now, we have to suffer through a world full of injustice, a world full of tragedy and sin. But perhaps instead of, in your lamenting, asking why and where to God, Maybe instead in your lamenting, ask what and how. Instead of asking God, where are you in this trial or circumstance that I'm in the middle of right now? Maybe ask God, what are you working to accomplish in this trial or circumstance I'm in? Maybe instead of when when suffering comes upon you, maybe instead of saying, why me, God? Maybe instead you say, God, how can I use this circumstance and suffering to bring you glory? After all, when you lament 
to Jesus about your circumstances and suffering, you're not, you're not listened to by God who doesn't understand. Jesus is hearing your prayers and he's saying, I know, I know. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to look on injustice. I know what it's like to be unjustly treated. I know what it's like to have sin all around you and have to work hard to stand against that temptation. I know what war is like. I know all of these things. Dane Ortland says this about justice. I thought this was profound. He says, no one gets injustice from God, either justice or mercy. Justice in hell or mercy in heaven. No injustice. Bad people get a bad result in hell or bad people get a good result in heaven. There's no such category as a good person getting a bad result. And then he qualifies it, well, once there was. And it's a reference to Christ. Jesus is the only perfect person to receive wrath. Jesus experienced quietness from the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed, a prayer that would go unanswered and would ultimately lead him to the cross to have his arms stretched out and nailed to the wood and his feet nailed as he would suffocate and die. And not just die, but drink in the full wrath of God upon sin, taking your place. He took rampant sin that exists in the world and he placed it squarely upon his own shoulders. You want to lament about sin? Jesus says, I know. It was all on my shoulders on the cross. The full weight of sin in the whole world was on my shoulders on the cross. I know how heavy it is. And then the greatest act of injustice, as an innocent and perfect man is murdered as a criminal on a cross, God accomplishes divine justice. And that your sin is not unpaid for. The sin that you've committed your whole life and the sin that you'll commit as your life continues doesn't go unpaid for. It's been paid for by Jesus on the cross. It's not unfairly wiped away. It's wiped away in an act of justice by a righteous judge that we call God. And he gave us mercy through that act. And so as Jesus dies for our sins and extends mercy to sinners like you, guess what? He raises from the dead to seal the deal, to finalize the transaction, to give us what we call the good news, the gospel. And the gospel is this is that jacked up sinners like you and me who live in an unjust world can find justice and redemption and eternal life simply by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. That's all there is to it. But sometimes, even after we've accepted that truth, we come to God and we say, I don't like this. I don't understand this. I don't get it. And I'm angry. And I'm frustrated and I'm depressed and I'm sad. And God's saying, I know, just a little bit longer. And I promise it's working according to my plan. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.